Hey Fresh Capital listeners, it's a special episode this week. We've reached the incredible milestone of 100 deep dives or company breakdowns on the Fresh Cap pod. To mark the occasion, Albert and I are doing a draft and picking the top four companies we've looked at over the past two years to create a mini portfolio across some select industries. We then compare our portfolios to see who has the best. This is a really fun episode and a great way to pick up a snapshot of our insights over the last 100 episodes. Of course, for the full insights, check out our past episodes as well. As always, keep listening and enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week, we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn about companies and investing. Joining me for the 100th time, Albert, how are you doing? The big, the big one oh, Dan, we, we made it. We hit 100, 100 deep dives. I, I guess 100 long-form episodes is probably what we'd call it rather than deep dives. Yeah, the big one, double O. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a big achievement, Albert. Well done. Congratulations. Um, I, was, I was sort of reflecting this morning. I don't know what I've done for 100 weeks straight. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to quantify. I I've definitely haven't been to work 100 weeks straight, like, you know, without taking a break or, or something like that. Um, if I think about diet, exercise, I definitely haven't done those 100 weeks straight. But I have basically sat down or stood up with you for 100 weeks straight to talk about, you know, companies and investing and tech. It's pretty cool. It's pretty crazy that there's almost 100 hours of us talking about, you know, podcast, you know, on the podcast, companies, tech, investing, different companies we're interested in, different companies that we're not interested in. Like that, that's probably going to stay on the internet in perpetuity, right? Like it's strange to be able to say like we can look back on this in a couple of years' time and see what we thought and how our thinking changes, what we crystallized. Yeah, even now I can look back at this list as I was trying to choose my picks and, and realize how completely wrong I was about some particular businesses. Well, that sort of brings us into this week's episode. For, so for all the listeners, we're going to be doing a, a company draft, which is basically Albert and I are going to build a, a four-company portfolio, and there's some parameters around that. And then we're, basically we're, we're trying to create a portfolio out of the episodes, the companies we've covered in previous episodes, um, with the end sort of result being a comparison between Albert's portfolio, my portfolio, and we're both trying to just sort of beat the S&P 500 over a five, 10-year type time horizon. So fairly simple. Um, Albert will start first with his pick, then I'll have a pick. And then in terms of the parameters, Albert, what were the parameters we set ourselves for the companies we could choose? Yeah, so great overview. Picking four companies, uh, a SaaS business, an e-commerce business, a social media slash content businesses, kind of lump those two together because, you know, they're almost one and the same these days. And then a wild card. It's worth calling out that we don't have to draft in that order. So we don't have to go SaaS first, then e-com, then social media, then wild card. You know, we can we can choose uh, which companies we want off the draft board, and the draft board is all the companies I've spoken about. I haven't shared my picks with Dan. Dan hasn't shared his picks with me. Uh, so I think this will be quite a candid debate. You know, we haven't done much like pre-episode intro discussions like we normally do. So I think this will be fun. 
I think this is going to be really, really fun. So, Albert, do you want to hit us off? Give us your first pick. Yeah, so I think it was it's pretty fitting that I'm going to choose this company um, because it's kind of the company that started it all when it comes to our shift to Asia tech, even though we covered it quite a while ago. I hope you don't have this on your draft board, Dan. I think it deserves the number one pick overall in this draft. So, number one pick overall, I'm choosing Alibaba from, from Asia. Uh, Alibaba is the Chinese e-commerce giant. Traditionally, it used to, to offer wholesale e-commerce solutions. So if you're a business, you could buy your you know raw materials, you can buy um, different products and things like that that you could then on-sell. But now they've expanded to become more of an ecosystem technology giant, kind of like Amazon. You know They've got a core e-commerce business that acts more like Shopify now, but they've also got other products. You know They've got their B2C business. They've got logistics, they've got payments, they've got Alibaba Cloud. They've obviously got their their content business. So very much like Amazon. Yeah, a really good pick. Uh, it's, I mean, there are some cheat picks here, I think, Albert, you know, where we can be picking Apple, Microsoft, all those sorts of ones. Um, what's interesting to you about Alibaba, though? So, you know, aside from the fact there's obviously a giant, and I think when we talk about it, you know, we talk about it as the Chinese monster, um, in a good way, as in it's just a monster company covering all those uh, segments that you, you talked about. What's like the the one thing which you sort of grab onto and you think is quite unique, quite interesting about Alibaba? Yeah, great, great question. I think for me, it's the the full stack part of their business. So, you know, Amazon really started as a retail business and they leveraged that as a wedge to expand to other things. And they're now really over-indexing on cloud which is a similar but very different business to what they are. Whereas Alibaba have really pushed into the stack of retail and then expanded from that. So they've gone from B2B retail, B2B e-commerce, and then B2C. You know, you've obviously got to then deliver that. So they're doing logistics. You've got to pay for that. So they're doing payments. They've also included uh, food. They've included uh, search. So they've done search-based engines for their consumer business. And now they're wrapping around content, they're wrapping cloud, they've got an innovation business. So they're kind of a full stack business that's really built themselves around their ecosystem as opposed to looking at these like crazy moonshot adjacencies. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Alibaba as well. I think it's a strong first pick, uh, particularly because it's hard to see at the moment, I think the e-commerce part, when I was looking at these segments of the portfolios, Albert, I thought e-commerce was arguably the, the weakest one. If you're looking, projecting out five years or so, obviously consumer sentiment down, we'd expect consumer spend to be sort of depressed. Uh, I won't reveal my pick yet for e-commerce, but you know, across some of these companies, there have been layoffs, there have been cost-cutting measures as they're trying to just sort of tighten their belts. This is particularly an industry where the competitors are just, they're spending as much money as they can against each other to try and build their market size, get customers in the door. And in the next sort of five-year period, that might not be a strategy that can can realistically win out and be sustainable. Um, but that's where the strength of Alibaba comes in. They've got all these different verticals, revenue generating segments, which can help their e-commerce part of their platform. And they're also in a part of the world where arguably there's, there's even if there's depressed demand, the growing middle class in the region will help sort of uh, buffer against against that particular um, market force. So 
Strong pick, Albert. Big fan. Thank you. Thank you. Good to good to have you dap my pickup. I'll throw <laughs> it to you for the uh, the second pick. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go towards my SAS pick, Albert. Because I think this is probably the one where if we're gonna have overlap, I think this is this is where it is. So I want to get it off the board and into my hands. I'm picking Adobe with my second pick. And very, Adobe very nice. Me, very nice. Adobe for me is one of my favorite SaaS company, I think. And I think of subscription as a service. And one of the things I want to talk about, because we didn't get a chance, because this happened after our Adobe episode, was the Figma acquisition. And I think this is like a really pivotal moment for Adobe because what this signals is they're really now focused on the potential competitor set with Canva, a really well-known Australian equivalent, where when we talk about, you know, Adobe obviously with software design, Photoshop, designer tools, uh, all those particular aspects of, of their product suite, it's very much focused on the doer. You know, if you're a designer then you'd use their software design suite. If you're a photographer, then you use Photoshop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Canva and Figma are quite similar in that they're sort of taking a job-to-be-done approach where they're not targeting their software, their subscription towards a particular uh, persona, a particular occupation. They're just trying to solve a particular job. You know, and that might be for Canva or for Figma, it might be a particular marketing output that a company needs to, to get done. And that might actually go across multiple occupations in a particular company. And I think what Adobe has realized here is they no longer can just sell to particular segments. You know, there's only, I think I saw the, the sort of numbers, there's only 1 million UX designers in the US, but there's 8 million people in product management, front-end development, product marketing which just broadens the pie of what they can actually sell their product to. So I think while Figma was a bit of a, you know, it was a very expensive purchase, $20 billion, I think it's a really pivotal shift for Adobe and it's a really exciting shift to broaden out the people they're selling to. Really, really great pick, Dan. I think it's so so timely that you called out Adobe. It's actually third on my draft board for SaaS, so there's two other companies ahead of Adobe, but, you know, it was something I, I really debated I think the Adobe CEO, uh, Shantanu Narayan, is an incredible CEO. I think we talked about on our episode of Adobe how he really took this on-prem business and transformed it into this like behemoth cloud business, and which is incredibly transformative. And now this, this acquisition of Figma, once again, will be transformative for Adobe. So I think this is an excellent pick. And just one last shout out to sort of listeners. This is, if, if you're trying to think of a comparison of this Figma Adobe deal, a really interesting comparison is Salesforce's acquisition of Slack because it's a similar sort of move where there's a very focused product-led company, Adobe and Salesforce, picking up more of a collaborative tool uh, platform and then now trying to integrate that in with their business. And I think that's, that's a really future-led um, acquisition which is going to pay off in the future. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, the, the deal wasn't met in market with, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, praise. You know, it, it did erode a lot of uh, Adobe's market value mm. um, and particularly around the price tag. A lot of people talking about how you can justify a price tag that's about, you know, 50, 50x ARR for Figma. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize how amazing Figma is as a product and actually how quickly it's grown. Like for the first five or six years of Figma, 
it wasn't making any money because they didn't monetize it. So it's gone to like $400 million in revenue in like maybe five years, which is unbelievable growth. So I think Figma is amazing business. I think Adobe did this the right way. And I think they're just positioning themselves to keep pushing and be transformative. Pick number three is all yours, Albert. Look, I think, I think this one might get a bit of debate around uh, whether it fits the, the mandate or not. Um, but I'm going to go with social media content. And for social media content, I'm going to choose TikTok as my third pick. Uh, again, TikTok is a business that we've done very recently. It, it's kind of been uh, within our push into uh, Asia tech. I think it might have even been one of the first businesses we did that was still private. Um, but if anyone doesn't know, you must be living under a rock. But TikTok, one of the most popular apps at the moment, one of the most downloaded apps. It's a short form video sharing app that allows users to create and share. You know, it was 15 seconds, but now much longer videos on any topic. It's run by a Chinese business called ByteDance. It's basically an English clone of an app they have already called Douyin. The Chinese version and the English version don't interact at all. So there's no content sharing. There's no user base that's the same unless you actively make an account on either of the two apps. It's highly addicting. They've got amazing algorithms to show you exactly what you know you want to see before you even know it. And because of that, TikTok gets third pick overall, my, my second pick. I'm feeling a little bit bad at the moment, Albert, because I really love TikTok and I really love Alibaba in some senses because they are just just huge companies. And do you want to share that stat? Uh, for anyone who follows Albert on Instagram, you would have seen it. But in terms of the amount of screen time people are spending on their various social media apps, TikTok is far and above all of their competitors, you know, Facebook, YouTube, um, WhatsApp, some of those other ones. So do you have that to hand, Albert? Yeah, so uh, there's a stat here. Uh, on average, TikTok users spend 28.7 hours per month on TikTok, which is almost more than the other three major social media apps, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. Combined, I think they clock in at around 29 hours uh, altogether. And so TikTok is almost as addicting as the other three combined, and it's more addicting than the other three if you just look at that on face value. So I love that you brought up uh, how addictive it is, Albert, because this is this feeds into how I've constructed my portfolio. I've leaned heavily into the content um, business rather than the social media business for my pick, precisely because if I'm looking out five, ten years, I actually think there's going to be a pretty sharp correction towards social media companies in terms of privacy, in terms of the addictive nature, all of that. How have you factored in that risk? Do you factor in it at all to picking TikTok number three? Look, I think there's, that's obviously a huge risk and there's the, the other geopolitical risk that comes with TikTok being a Chinese-owned company. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a great call out. I think long-term I'm betting on, on TikTok to continue to navigate that risk as it has previously. I mean, it was almost about to sell its Western business to you know Oracle or Microsoft or one of these giant tech behemoths. So I, I definitely see that TikTok moving in that direction. You know, it is a major risk, um, but TikTok has shown that it can evolve and it evolved from what it formerly was, which is musically. So I really believe in in what this business can do uh, and, and how it's going to evolve regardless of the regulatory or geopolitical environment. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about TikTok for that reason. I, I do think 
you know, and we had this discussion just sort of a while back. I was listening to a podcast which sort of posed a really provocative thought, which was if, uh, if, if as a community, if as, you know, a society, depending on which country you're in, there is a decision made that social media companies are preying on particularly our children in terms of their attention, in terms of money, et cetera, in the same way that similar stances have been made of cigarettes and smoking, gambling. And there's a very sort of sharp line drawn, which is as a social media company, you should no longer be able to profit off um, our user data. And instead, you have to make your money another way. And the sort of most reasonable alternative would be subscription service. So instead of Facebook, uh, Instagram, TikTok being free, you're paying $5 a month, but now there's no longer the incentive for these companies to harvest your data, get you on the app as long as possible so they can sell that to advertisers, et cetera. To me, that it made a lot of sense when I heard it and it stuck with me ever since as like, I could see that sticking in the mind of legislators and then slowly pushing itself forward as sort of a momentum to correct social media apps in, in general. Yeah, I mean, there, there's ways around it, right? Because TikTok... Uh you know, while they are leveraging user data and they've got advertising, like they can start to build in other things into the TikTok ecosystem to be an ecosystem player, like retail where they can start to take a clip, you know, like movies, interactive games, shopping, things like that. So there are different ways this business could potentially monetize if given the right regulatory push. I think the other thing I would call out is that, you know, it's kind of different to other social media platforms in that there's pretty limited peer-to-peer interactions. Like TikTok isn't really an interactive social mm. media in that you can like, you know, message other people in real time. Like it's got kind of very limited interactions often through comments, sharing other people's comments. It's really more about content sharing. I think because of that, it probably gets less data and privacy concerns long-term. I think the key tension is like, what the what Chinese governments, if there is influence from a Chinese government, is using with that data because it's feeding off geopolitical tensions. Yeah, I like that pickup actually because really the only people with privacy concerns will be those uploading their own videos, in which case you're kind of waiving uh, your privacy concerns at that point. Whereas you know Facebook and others, you know, there's there's probably a little bit more. Um, not nefarious, but just sort of unknown privacy risks there with the sort of data that they're gathering. Albert, my pick now? Yes, please. I'm, I'm keen to hear it. I'm going to go for my wild card. Um, oh. <laughs> you've activated my trap card. I'm going with Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, TSM. <laughs> I knew it would have overlap somewhere. I mean, for me, this is, this is the big one. To, to me, if I, I think of one of the most concrete trends which I can see going forward, it's clearly the fact that more and more things in our everyday life are going to need computer chips, semiconductors. Um, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing is not only one of the biggest fabricators of semiconductors, it's also one of the most advanced. You know, Really, it's it and um, it's Samsung, is that right, which are capable of which are capable of manufacturing like the thinnest possible wafers at the moment. Every other fabricator, you know, they're a couple of millimeters behind. So really when it comes down to the, the kind of manufacturer that Apple is going to as a supplier, 
that's TSM. When you think of all the other big premium companies, they're going to TSM. And the interesting thing, which sort of I was trying to hone in in my research for this week's episode, Albert, was just thinking, well, where's the growth for the semiconductor market? Because anyone who's invested in semiconductors at the moment will actually know that they're down for the year. And that's because consumer spend is down, spending on PCs, gaming devices, mobile phones were slightly depressed. The real big growth engines for semiconductors are going to be wireless communications. You know, the the push to 5G is going to create so much more of a need. Data storage infrastructure, you think of all of those um, big, big computers, data storage units, they all need semiconductors. And then the big one, automotive electronics. At the moment, you know, a car which is powered by an internal combustion engine, uses about $500 worth of semiconductors. It's projected that, you know, by 2030, it's going to be about $4,000 worth of semiconductors in one of these sort of self-driving autonomous vehicles. Like that's an eight times multiple in just sort of 10 years. That's something, that's a tailwind I can get behind. That's a, that's a really great pick, Dan. That was also my wild card pick, as you can tell from from my reaction. I think I might have to ask you to um to, to bleep that out in post because I know my <laughs> mom listens to this um to this podcast. But yeah, I absolutely agree. TSMC is doing some amazing things. You know, they're they're the only um, fab maker who can produce wafers at a particular size. You know, we talked about in this on the pod, but you know, making those factories takes a really long time. It's really difficult to build that kind of expertise. And they're just blowing everyone else out the water. The only really limiting factor for them is like how quickly they can manufacture this because this business could be much larger than it is if they could. And to be honest, it's already like one of the largest companies in the world by market cap. And and it's really happened the past couple of years. So I think TSMC is an awesome pick. I think it's just going to be one of those businesses that you look to the future to say, like, why didn't we invest, invest in this sooner? Like, People are still going to be investing in TSMC now, and I reckon would still get, you know, five to ten x returns in the market. Five to ten x returns in the market—that is—that is huge, Abbott. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm really bullish on it. Uh, just just sort of a secret, Albert. I do actually edit out all of your swear words, uh, not even just the huge <laughs> ones like that one. Over the last over the last 100 episodes, Albert, I have caught every one of your swears and I've edited them out in post. There we go. Uh, there we go. I appreciate that. Uh, your pick is up. Uh, look, um, I think I'm going to go with my um, my SAS pick now. I was about to pick my wild card pick. Um, but seeing as you've taken my wildcard pick, I will have to think about whether I go for number two or number three based on my portfolio construction because I've gotten my previous two picks. Uh, so my SAS pick, which I know I can take because you've already picked a SAS pick, going with high-growth business Snowflake, which is you know one of the best-performing SAS businesses uh, in market at the moment, incredibly high-growth business, it's probably one of our top performing episodes as well. Uh, so, you know, for anyone who, who's not familiar with it, Snowflake is a data cloud platform provider. What they've done is they've created a platform that consolidates all your data um, as, a, as a company in one place. So you can start to analyze it, run, run you know, different pieces of analysis on it, uh, move it around, analyze, transact on it, run queries on it, etc. Uh, so it is basically a, a big database warehouse or data lake that enables people to run uh, analysis on all your data all at once. Yeah, a really strong sort of enterprise uh, business, Albert. 
like Snowflake. I actually saw someone in Annadale walking around with a, a Snowflake jumper on, so clearly a, you know, an employee of Snowflake. Um, what, what I find kind of interesting about your portfolio construction is I'm trying to sense the through line. You have sort of two Chinese giants with Alibaba, TikTok, and then the switch up to Snowflake, obviously um, a little bit different there. Is, is there sort of a, a unifying theme behind your portfolio or are you just looking at strong companies individually? Yeah, I think to me it was like things uh, companies that their customers love. It's like yeah. Alibaba is a really great example where, you know, the people who use Alibaba, the people who like the businesses, the people who've, who've used Alibaba payments, Shopify, et cetera, you know, really strong customer love. Same with TikTok, like the fact that you've got people spending, you know, almost a week's worth of their time on TikTok. It's highly addicting, but they do it because, you know, they absolutely love it. I think TSMC was going to be another pick, but that that's obviously an incredible business. But also Snowflake is a business that people talk about. Uh, you know, I don't use it, but people talk about how it solves so many problems for them. Just the ability to shift uh, isolated or siloed data all into one place, you know, run analysis on, on both structured and unstructured data just really empowers organizations. I think the other lens I add to it, I know we talk about this a lot, was these are high gross margin businesses. Yeah, Alibaba, it doesn't buy its own products, so it's pretty high margin. Uh, TikTok, obviously very high margin because it's just a content platform. And then Snowflake, SaaS, also incredibly high margin. And so to, to me, it's really important that you know a business has high margins because they can generate a lot of cash once you can start to control the scale of the business. A good analysis, Albert. I like that. The, the one thing I sort of like on a more macro level for Snowflake is, you know, if I, if I think, why am I picking TSM? It's because I, I believe in a world where there's just more and more computer chips that are, are needed. And as one of the leading computer chip manufacturers, they're going to be able to take advantage of that. I also believe that our world is trending towards more and more data. That data is going to be structured, unstructured. It's going to be across multiple platforms, multiple businesses, Alibaba, TikTok, etc. And in that kind of world, you need a company like Snowflake. So in, in that sense, I think a really strong pick too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think a lot of people, you know, don't realize this about Snowflake, but they can effectively replace a lot of existing data warehouse solutions just because they've got this very unique go-to-market structure, which we talked about. You know, they do users-based pricing. So as opposed to pricing based on a subscription service, you know, they're charging, you know, their customers based on usage. So as their customers start to use the product more and more and more, that plays out really well in Snowflake's flavor. They've, they've really entered a lot of customers with like volume-based discounts and discounting to begin with in their first year, first three years. But we've seen this incredible retention in the business. We've seen incredible usage uptick in later years. So I think there's a lot of potential for Snowflake to just kind of explode as a business when all you know those discounts start to run out. You know, their customers have to pay full prices or their data is already there so they can't you know, leave to find a new provider. Like, I think it's going to be amazing when Snowflake really, really ticks off in public markets for the next couple of years. All right. I'm going to do my e-commerce pick, Albert, which is going to be Shopee, which is essentially obviously C Limited, the, the Singaporean Ooh. giant. In some ways, I don't think we have to dwell on this too much because almost everything that you said for Alibaba, I think is true of C and Shopee. Um, Shopee is obviously the e-commerce arm of C, but C also plays in 
uh, Garena, so the the gaming. They also play in in sort of financial payments, digital transactions, all that sort of all the the usual segments you'd expect to accompany e-commerce. What I wanted to sort of focus on was was that point that I mentioned when you were talking about Alibaba, where there is going to be a, a depressed consumer market appetite for the next couple of years. Obviously, some countries are sort of going into recession-like conditions. And one of the things that I've keyed in on as why I'm interested in, in C and, and Shopee as a, as a business segment is that they're sort of leading the charge to, <laughs> this is probably the wrong way to put it, but they're leading the charge to downsize, to cost cut, and to really sort of get their back house in, in order. And one of the things they've said is they're looking to become self-sufficient and have positive cash flow within the next year, year and a half, so 12 to 18 months. And that kind of affirms or aligns with a view I have, which is, yes, e-commerce, great. I understand the, the idea behind just spending money and getting customers in the door, and then you flick a switch and you, you, you start generating cash. But the fact that they're an early mover to just understanding that the market conditions have now changed, they need to take some action, gives me a lot of confidence in their management team. And when I look at some of the markets where they've exited and they've only been in there for a couple of months after launching like France, Spain, India, like to me, yes, it's time to get focused as a business. And to me, that actually gives me more confidence in them that they're getting out of some of those markets, uh, even if now seems like the wrong time to be investing in or looking at a company like like C. Yeah, good, good, really good uh, analysis, Dan. I think the other thing that's very different to Alibaba, you know, these are obviously two big behemoths in the e-commerce space in the Asian region, is that Shopee is kind of a gaming company and that it's got this gaming arm, Garena, but its philosophy of gaming permeates through its e-commerce business. Like they've got this like gamified shopping experience with like different discounts. You've got Shopee coin, which you can earn. You've got like games that then you can play on Shopee to then get discounts on different things. You've got like Shopee live streams in the same way you do gaming live streams. So I think because, you know, Shopee's really taken these key things about gaming that people love and then gamified their shopping business, they're a really different experience to like any other e-commerce shopping, which I think will position them really well in really select markets. And that, that may not work in some of those markets that are divested from. But, you know, those are things you need to experiment with as a business. Yeah, I mean, that sort of actually hits on when I was constructing my portfolio, Albert, I was taking the view that I've got, you know, something like uh, a trillion dollars and I'm actually buying all these companies. And I'm trying to think, which four companies would I buy so that there's then synergies amongst them? And I guess the synergies I was thinking of when I was looking at C and Shopee, um, Adobe and then also TSM was I'm trying to sort of get a stack along the value chain where it's like I believe there's going to be um, I believe content's going to be king and therefore people want to be generating the content which is Adobe and obviously the Figma acquisition people are going to be using handheld devices and a lot more digital devices that's TSM with the hardware um, and then in terms of the e-commerce see having that gaming background to me was really really attractive and coming up soon will be my content pick which will sort of mesh all three together wow i'm very good dan very very good uh, I, I like the way you've thought about it. i think we've approached it very differently yeah. but i think equally like i'm looking at the three companies have picked 
on the board. So I've got Snowflake, Alibaba, TikTok, and then you've got Shopee, Adobe, and who is your third? TSM. And TSMC, that's right. How could I forget? Uh, and so I think, you know, there are the, those three already, uh, even between you and me, they're, they're incredibly strong portfolios. And, you know, some of these really top performing companies that you'd expect to continue being top performing in the future. Is your wild card up next, Albert? Yeah. Do you want to guess what it is? Uh, give me, give me a, a hint. Uh, I mean, if I didn't pick TSMC, I would probably pick this company because what, what, what it is. Samsung? Oh, close, close. Samsung's third. So I, I've chosen to go with my wild card, very similar business, but also kind of a key contributor in the stack, gone with NVIDIA. I think one of, one of oh, the best nice. episodes we've done uh, in terms of like how much I enjoyed talking about NVIDIA. It's an incredible business. NVIDIA is a, is a chip company that uh, designs GPUs uh, for, you know, at, uh, historically gaming consoles, mobile computing, now really pushing into other things like professional visualization, um, GPUs in cars. You know, they've basically made this um, GPU that's programmable that then can be used in a lot of different uh, environments, different use cases, different purposes. And they've also made that programming language accessible. It's called CUDA. And so because of this, they've got this like full stack business where you've got their CUDA software so people can program their GPUs. And then they also sell their GPUs. So it's incredibly sticky as a business because it means that if they don't have the right GPU for a piece of, for a purpose or a piece of technology or use case, someone can program it. And that's, and that's how they really started to leverage into the business they're in now is people were using their gaming GPUs to do a bunch of like scientific calculations. I thought about NVIDIA for a bit and I, when I, I ended up picking my wildcards, I was going to be TSM or Samsung. And I think that was with the thought in mind that if I'm going to own a chip company, I want to own the manufacturer. I don't want to own the designer. So speak to that a little bit more, Albert. Why is a designer attractive to you? Look, I mean, the chip company and the printer only just prints what you give it. And so while that is really important, there, there's a level of competitiveness that comes with being able to design the best chips uh, in terms of how they're used at a particular purpose, as well as being able to work with different uh, businesses who don't necessarily have the capability to design their own chips. And so NVIDIA kind of sits in between, you know, a business or one of their customers and TSMC because they can work with those organizations to develop amazing chips. So a good example is this. They've got what they call the NVIDIA Drive, which is for autonomous vehicles, hence the name. It's like a full stack platform for automotive development for autonomous vehicles. So it means if you're running an autonomous vehicle, you can put these NVIDIA chips in and it'll help the computer and the car like input all this feed and all this data, take it all in, take sensor data, take visuals data, take camera data, and basically help that car drive. And so they've designed the chip for a particular purpose. They've got really close relationships with their customers, and that's their key competitive advantage against other kind of non-fab chip players, so players who don't have manufacturing capabilities, is that they've got highly specialized chips 
as well as this programming language that they can use to keep improving the use case for those chips. Yeah, and I think when we talk about those competitors, it's AMD, it's Intel, and NVIDIA is making really big strides. Intel is obviously the market leader. When we did our episode, Albert, Intel was you know something like 62% market share with NVIDIA really starting to bite into that. And when you look at more particularly gaming devices, NVIDIA already really leading in that segment. I guess one of the reasons why I like the manufacturer play was I'm then exposing myself to the rises in obviously autonomous vehicles and cars as well as gaming and other sort of portable handheld devices. Whereas I feel like the NVIDIA play really will benefit from, and I believe will be true, the rise in gaming, AR, VR, and those particular use cases, but maybe not so much towards things like autonomous vehicles where I'm not sure, but I don't think the software and the design of those chips are as you know geared towards those particular use cases. Yeah, I mean, it's still a growing part of their business. It's it's like two percent of you know their revenue. They're looking for it to be much larger in the future. Mm. But you know, historically, gaming data centers, you know, high performance visualizations is where Nvidia did play. I think the other thing that's worth calling out is. There's a really symbiotic relationship here between NVIDIA and TSMC. The last couple of years have really propelled both companies to become really key players. And so, you know, NVIDIA is what it is because of TSMC and TSMC is what it is because of its relationship with NVIDIA. Okay, Albert, that's your portfolio rounded out. Ready for my last pick? Yeah, let's, uh, let's hear it. So obviously, keeping in mind what I spoke about before, I'm not bullish on the social media companies because I think there probably is going to be a a regulatory correction that really affects their business structure. And so for that reason, I focused on content being king. And like I said, I wanted to sort of position my portfolio across the stack. And the company that I thought just best did that was a recent one we looked at, Albert, Sony. And I absolutely love Sony's business profile because of the way that they not only, I guess, sort of sell the license of unique IP, but they're across music, they're across film, they're across anime and cartoons. Like to me, that is just such a strong triumvirate of content, which they can then farm out to all the other companies. And there's there's a really fun quote, I think, from um, their sort of CEO of Sony Pictures Entertainment, which is basically, you know, in summary saying, Netflix, Disney, Amazon, Apple, Warner Brothers, they're all going to be paying us for our content and that's a position we're super happy with because they're going to burn the money trying to compete over subscribers and Sony can benefit from all of them by just selling their content on. It's a bit like how in the the Second World War, the United States benefited so much because everyone was uh, buying weaponry and materials from the United States and they obviously profited from that tremendously. Sony, I think, is in such a good position for these streamer wars, which will play out, consolidation will occur, and they're going to be a beneficiary of all of that. Great call out. I, I really love this pick, um, the arms dealer of content, the content arms dealer <laughs> Sony. I think the, the key things to really call out here is like um, it, it's inevitable that a lot of these companies, these content streaming businesses, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, Apple TV, you know, Hulu, etc., Paramount, like they're all going to be fighting to become the number one streaming player. And now we've gone to a position where it's kind of like cable where you almost have to have all of them 
now you're paying a lot of money for those businesses they're competing on differentiation in, in content and so part of that what really drives them is you know access to high quality content but also can they produce their own content but these companies aren't production companies right like they spend a lot of money on production spend a lot of money trying to access the right talent you know who already has that sony like sony has this talent across their business across every part of their business in that they do motion picture they do music they also make the cameras that you can film with they're this like highly vertically integrated content business that all those other companies wish they were. So I think this is a really great pick. Yeah, and so maybe this is where we sort of uh, summarize our portfolios, Albert. Everything you were just saying there I think really ties together my thesis behind my portfolio, which is, you know, this is going to be a world where content is going to be king. More and more content will be accessible and be demanded from people. And that's where... Sony's going to be there with obviously their content, which needs to be distributed out. TSM is going to be providing the infrastructure and the computer chips to make all of that happen. Adobe's providing the software to produce content. And then, you know, a little bit off to the side, but still somewhat integrated is C and Shopee with their e-commerce experience with that sort of content and gaming underlying theme behind how they, they do things and operate. Yeah, it's really interesting because... You know, content is such a new age thing at the moment where everyone, you're trying to build your own audience, you're trying to monetize content. Content is highly scalable because once it's there, it's, it's there. But for a lot of the businesses you've picked, they're quite legacy businesses in their own respective mm. fields like Adobe, you know, C, uh, Discounted, Sony, TSMC. But they're all really great examples of businesses that have continued to leverage their positions of strength to keep moving from strength to strength. How would you summarize your portfolio, Albert? Oh, look, I think these are like high growth moonshot businesses. No, but I think, you know, ultimately, I think these are really strong businesses who are, who are carving out uh, key market shares in where they play. Uh, and they've got really strong differentiators for Snowflake. They've got like incredible capability for Alibaba. You know, they've got this full stack retail offering that, you know, no one else has uh, in terms of geographic scale as well. Uh, NVIDIA, you know, they've got a highly differentiated suite of products that they're wrapped around with some software uh, and, and TikTok, you know, they just got this highly addicting platform that could, they could take in all shapes and sizes, different directions. So when I look at my portfolio, I'll look at, you know, maybe like high cash businesses, maybe Snowflake uh, excluded for now, because it is still very high growth, like high margin businesses who can leverage that margin to go on to keep expanding into new areas of the business or new adjacencies. No, no, I really like this, Alec, because after 100 episodes, you know, I feel like I've got to know you as, I guess you could say, an investor or just the, a, a persona that analyzes businesses and companies. And I'm sure the listeners have got a sense of, of both of us as well. And I feel like our portfolios sort of reflect that. The companies I've all chosen are based on a macro sort of high-level thesis of where I think the world is going. And you, I think, have really built your portfolio with a more of a, a, that as well, but a view of the bones of the business, what makes something, you know, potentially great as a mechanism, as a structure behind it, which I think sort of takes out a little bit of how we both think about companies and business. Yeah, I think it's really funny that we both picked TSMC as a wildcard. I know you ended up with it as a pick, but it was my 
my number one pick as well, and I don't think we had any overlap uh, elsewhere. But, you know, that is an incredible business on both ends of that scale, which is like it's a really high margin business because they create a premium product that no one else can create. So they've created like they've got amazing pricing power. They've got this cornered resource of of chip designers and manufacturing because no one else can do it. It takes a really long time to build these factories. And then they've got, um, you know, this incredible tailwind behind them as, you know, the world's going digital, everything needs a chip now. Like your your fridge needs a chip, your car needs a chip. The best chip maker is really expensive and they're not going to reduce their prices and you don't want to go with a, a lower, you know, tier manufacturer. And those manufacturers just can't keep up with the capabilities required. So I think TSMC is what I'm hearing is just going to be one of those really enduring businesses. Hmm. Anything else to add before we finish up, Albert? That was a pretty fun episode. I think overall 100 episodes is a pretty exciting milestone to hit. I think, you know, looking back on it, where we started, it's some like, what do we start with, with zero? Um, you know, yeah, it's pre- it's pretty... Right. Yeah, with zero, pretty great journey to go from from you know this Australian or New Zealand business. Sorry, it is New Zealand, um, and, and to expand all the way into like US tech, Asia tech. You know, we've analysed a lot of like really strange businesses as well, and so you know it does really shape how we think about companies. You start to get pan recognition. It's been good. Yeah, and I had a lot of fun along the way. And uh, to any of the listeners. Rate our, rate our portfolios. If you've got a company that you think we should have added in that we left out, we didn't hit, let us know. Um, and thanks again for being with us on the journey. You know, 100 episodes is huge, huge milestone. We hope to have you all around for when we hit the 200 episode mark and the next mark after that. So let's wrap it up there, Albert. Thank you for listening to the Fresh Capital podcast, a podcast about companies and investing told in a refreshingly simple way. We'll catch you for episode 101 next week. Thanks again. See ya. Thank you for listening to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn how companies operate and how investing works. Just a reminder, all information contained in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, financial, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Fresh Capital are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Any opinions expressed in the show are not recommendations or advice. Please consult a licensed financial professional before you jump in. As always, we look forward to seeing you next week. See ya!